This is an RNZ podcast. Lava and welcome to the best of first up for Friday the 4th of June, call Katrina Badenaho. In today's pod, Space News with Space James, New Zealand's quarantine-free travel bubble pause with Victoria is extended a further six days, and flyer beware, a warning for travellers, check what your travel insurance covers. But first, did you know that until the end of the month, if you have a community services card or gold card and live in Auckland, you can get up to 10 cats de-sexed and microchipped for free. The SBCA is running the Chip and Snip campaign to tackle the huge number of unwanted kittens being born. But if you don't have 10 cats yourself, it's possible for you to donate your vouchers to an animal rescue charity. Reporter Ella Stewart spoke with Mungify's Helping Paws Rescue trustee, Megan Denise, about the scheme. The SPCA initiative is a new one for this year. So previously, the SPCA has run a snip and chip program across Auckland, which has been really targeted um, to lower socioeconomic suburbs. But over the last 12 months, they've changed that program, and what they're doing is allowing free de-sexing for anyone who has a gold card or a community services card. So anyone with those cards can apply and they can de-sex up to 10 cats each. And what's your involvement in all of this? The programme that the SPCA is running is wonderful this year. It enables people to not only de-sex their own pets or their own cats or their own cats in their neighbourhood, if they're affiliated or a supporter of or a volunteer of a rescue group, they can opt to use the allocation of 10 cats to de-sex cats that are actually taken in by another rescue. That's really important because what we find is quite often people will come across stray cats in their neighbourhood, but they don't have the resources to go out and track them. And so what this program enables them to do is contact a rescue group. That rescue can coordinate trapping and de-sexing and the SPCA will support that effort by covering the cost of the de-sexing. And you posted on Facebook and um, how many people have reached out to you so far? What's the response been like? We've had an amazing response. What we've found is... um, People really want to help and the SBCA's program is a really easy way for people to have an an impact and really help cats at no cost to them. So we've had dozens of people who have contacted us asking if they can help out. Um, In fact, we've had more people than what we actually have cats at the moment, um, which is really good. And what it also shows is people just need to know that this program's here so that they can take advantage of it. So what happens when someone reaches out to you? What's the process there? People can help in one of two ways. Either they can hop online and go through the SPCA's application form. What we've been doing with a lot of our older supporters, though, is we've actually been going through the process for them, so inputting their details into the SPCA's application and just helping them along the way because there are a few bits and pieces of information which people may not have, which they will need in order to go through the application process. So the way the application process operates is you need to put in your cardholder details. If it's a community services card, you need your expiry date as well. If it's a gold card, there's no expiry date. 
you need to specify whether you are desexing your own cats, stray cats in your neighbourhood, or desexing on behalf of a, a rescue group that you are affiliated with. You need to nominate the vet that you wish to desex through, and then you press finish, and that's it. It's a really, really simple system. How important is it to desex cats? Incredibly important. It's it's important for a couple of reasons. One is cats can breed really prolifically. Um, female can, cats can have two or three litters each season, um, which is a lot of cats. Um, for example, we're just a small rescue, but we've taken in five or 600 cats and kittens just this kitten season, and we're just a drop in the ocean. Um, the SPCA and bigger rescues are taken in far greater numbers of than that. It's also really important because cats that are not desexed are more inclined to go wandering. So if you've got a treasured cat in your house, um, their drive to go and find a mate and reproduce overrides basically everything if they're not desexed. And so the chances of them going wandering and getting lost and never coming home is significantly higher if they're not desexed. Wow, so it does make quite a huge difference. It really does. It absolutely does. We recommend desexing before cats hit six months, which is a little bit different to what some vets recommend. What we find is a lot of vets recommend desexing at six months, but in our experience, it's actually too late. And a lot of the cats that we bring in have just hit six months. They've gone in to be desexed, and we've just found that they are already pregnant. So it is really important to get them desexed early. Our vet, for example, follows the international guidelines around desexing, which is basically that you can desex once a cat or kitten is one kilogram, which is quite little, but at that stage it's perfectly safe to to desex them. Sounds pretty easy, and especially with you guys um, kind of helping people along and doing that paperwork, um, it's, it's a very accessible way to help the community. It absolutely is. And the key thing at the moment is this program runs until the 30th of June, so there's only another month to actually get involved. We're really hoping that the SPCA extends the same program next year because from what we've seen, it's been really, really successful. But we're just seeing it from the outside. <laughs> so, um, yeah, phone calls to the SPCA would well be worth worth making. That was Megan Denise from Mungafai's Helping Paws, and you can get in touch with them on their Facebook page. Our host Nathan Rarade discussed all the news from off the planet with our regular space correspondent, Space James, James Parr from the Open Space Agency. Brigid, do you like that you're the only contributor we have that has their own jingle? Do you know what? I'm I'm totally thrilled. I've been telling everybody about it, so it's awesome. (laughs) Hey, tell me, what is this world floods thing that you've been involved in building? Um, so yeah, we are, we've been making machine learning um, using space data, and this is of course um, you know AI, artificial intelligence. Um, and our project was could we use AI to detect floods from space? Um, and uh, the project is essentially putting the AI on board a spacecraft, which is launching from um, uh, Kennedy Space Center later this this month. And then once it's up, um, uh, when the spacecraft you know, goes over a flooded region, it'll be able to draw a map of that flood region and then send that back to the Earth uh, that, instantaneously. So, James, there'll be people listening going, well, you know, if it's flooding, you just bloody go outside and it's raining a lot. So tell me, what, what would that be used for? If you if you look at a, a flooded regions, uh, for example, you know, say the Canterbury Plains, and you're an emergency responder, 
you know, you may be looking at hundreds of kilometres of, of, of flood region. Um, some houses flooded, some roads, roads closed. Like in the, in, the, in the heat of the moment, when the disaster is happening, it's really hard for emergency responders to to make sense of of um, all of the different, um, uh, if you like, hotspots that they need to um, tackle. But also insurance, like um, uh, once that floods, um, you know, the the rains have gone. Um, it's really important to get funds to the people who need it the most. Uh, normally, it can take days to get flood maps. This is the thing: is that uh, you'd think it'd be something that uh, can be done quickly, but actually, it, um, if you imagine all of the work of going around and getting a tape measure and measuring the silt and all that sort of stuff, this is a, this is actually a big manual task. Wow. So, the ability to do it from space with machine learning—that's really the breakthrough. That's very cool. Uh, just uh, speaking of space and going a little bit further than Earth, we've got two missions on the way to Venus have, have been announced. Um, tell us about those and why would we go to such a, a just, a, it seems like, the bowels of hell? <laughs> you know what? Um, it's really exciting because uh, we haven't been to Venus for 30 years. Like, essentially, we went um, originally and it was just so hot, uh, 450 degrees Celsius, so a lot hotter than um, anywhere else in the solar system apart from the sun. And um, because of that, like the spacecraft didn't last very long, and um, really it was sort of deemed not interesting. There's no way we could ever visit there or send human beings to to land there. But it is Earth's twin, so Venus is actually the closest planet in the solar system. It's closer than Mars, which is obviously one of the reasons why it's so bright, um, you know, in the morning uh, or evening when you see it. And um, and uh, it was about a billion years ago, we think it was a water planet. So it's in the Goldilocks zone, which is the habitable zone between um, not too not too hot and not too cold in theory. Um, but uh, and it did have water, but something happened. Something happened um, between sort of then and now, which made it this hellhole. And so this is the reason we're going back. We want to try and solve that that question what happened to venus why did it go from being habitable uh, essentially a twin of earth to being something which was you know 450 degrees and and absolutely sterile for life and they're sending two missions they've both got amazing um, acronyms nasa's brilliant acronyms and these ones are particularly good um, one's called da vinci uh, and the other one's called veritas or they they do sound like teams from the apprentice or something but um, <laughs> da vinci da vinci's the Deep Atmosphere Venus Investigation of Noble Gases and Chemistry and Imaging. So I think that needs an award for <laughs> acronyms. That is pretty good. And then, and then, um, so that one's looking at the atmosphere. And then Veritas, which is the, uh, I think they might have made up a word here. Let's see if you can guess which one it is. Venus Emissivity Radio Science Insar Topography and Spectroscopy. So I think that's that's what that they one just is. Needed that's an e. They <laughs> exactly. Need emissivity. Emissivity. Yeah, uh, yeah no. I'm not sure if your Scrabble skills are good enough to. We we have. Be a, I know yes. that we have um, wordsmiths in our audience. So if you've ever used emissivity, <laughs> can you let us know how, when, and who and why? Emissivity to go. That's actually it's quite interesting too. Da Vinci and Veritas they sound like names. If you know when you get those little cheap knockoff cars that are trying to be fancy ones, that sounds like the model of the day. Yeah, yeah, they're definitely like car brands Fake for Porsche. brands you perhaps you didn't. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's James Parr from the Open Space Agency. 
The pause in New Zealand's quarantine-free travel bubble with Victoria has been extended for a further six days. COVID-19 Response Minister Chris Hipkins announced Thursday that flights to New Zealand won't be happening until next Wednesday. I'm aware that this comes as a further disruption for people who have been stuck in Australia, whose travel has already been disrupted. It isn't a decision that we take lightly, but obviously uh, the fact that the government there have extended their lockdown restrictions uh, means that we need to extend our travel pause. The government is making preparations to allow so-called green zone flights from Wednesday to get people home. It'll be limited to New Zealand citizens and residents who'll be required to return a negative COVID test no more than 72 hours prior to departure. That recognises that they have effectively been in isolation for 14 days by next Wednesday, uh, which is the time they would spend in managed isolation uh, if they were if they had uh, come to New Zealand uh, under the arrangements that we had before the Trans-Tasman bubble uh, was operating. So I acknowledge it's a further inconvenience. They have to stay a little bit longer, uh, but we are making preparations to allow them to start coming home from next Wednesday, and we're working with the airlines on that. People who were in Victoria before travel was suspended but who haven't been in Melbourne are now able to fly back to New Zealand if it's possible for them to get to another state. The Insurance and Financial Services Ombudsman is warning hopeful bubble travellers to be prepared to take risks. Karen Stevens says the independent service received 230 mostly travel-related insurance complaints following last year's border closures, but most of them were rejected. She told our reporter Carmina Blewett why. There are two particular exclusions that are in travel most travel insurance policies. One is a pandemic exclusion, and from the time that the COVID-19 became a pandemic, a world, you know, from the World Health Organization, it then was excluded from cover. So anything related to COVID was no longer covered. The other exclusion that insurers were able to rely on if it was in their policy was the government directives or government interference exclusion. And that simply meant that if a government had said that it was closing its borders and, for example, a traveller got stuck on the wrong side of the border and then claimed to the insurance company to get you know, refunds for accommodation or travel or a new airfare or whatever, that was not covered because of that specific exclusion. Insurance is designed to cover unforeseen circumstances. So it's something that you aren't expecting and don't know about. I seem to recall that when the travel bubble was announced, the governments, both governments, both Australian and New Zealand, said very clearly things could change at any time. If we have to to close down the bubble and you get stuck on the wrong side of it, that's your problem. It's not the government's problem. And at that stage, because the people who are choosing to travel, they're taking the risk that that might happen. So it's an it's a known event. While it might not happen, it has been highlighted as a real risk that the borders will close and therefore any costs attributed to either alternative accommodation or changing flights will be a matter for the person travelling. It won't be a matter either for the government or the travel insurer. So say if I'm now planning a trip to Australia in the next couple of months and the state I'm visiting goes into lockdown, what then in terms of my travel insurance cover? Your travel insurance cover 
depending on the policy, and I'll say that to, to be quite clear, every policy is different, but generally if you take the risk of travelling to Australia knowing that there could be a border closure at any time, you're taking the risk that the and it's the type of risk that a travel insurer is not intending to cover. If an announcement was made in the state I'm going to and it goes into lockdown, will I be covered for changing my flight to get out of that state earlier? No. Will it cover me if I have to stay in my hotel for an extra week or two? No. If I get sick with COVID in Australia, would insurance cover my repatriation home or medical expenses there? Under most policies, probably not. Under the policy that Tara and Allianz partners are promoting or, or suggesting that they are going to promote later on, it might cover that, but I don't know. Anything that is related to COVID, and sometimes there's wording like directly or indirectly, will ordinarily, in most travel policies, be excluded. Mm. So... so- Anything, you know, any accommodation expenses, any travel expenses. However, if you were in Australia and you had a, something happen to your luggage, your luggage went missing and it's not COVID related, then you'd be covered. If you had another medical event and it wasn't a pre-existing condition and it wasn't related to COVID, you would probably be covered. For example, if a family member got sick, which has nothing to do with COVID, but, you know, they still won't sail out on a flight, insurance would still cover me. Probably. So what's the point in getting insurance then? Because before COVID, it covered all sorts of other things and COVID wasn't even thought about. It's a little bit like the Canterbury earthquake situation. Before there was mass destruction on a huge scale across Canterbury, all of the house policies responded usually in a one-off situation. Or the, you know, there could be situations like recently we've had flooding down in Canterbury and so there'll be a number of different people affected. But for the earthquakes, you know, a lot of people were affected. And all sorts of things happened with with the various policies that people had been reading for years and understanding for years. And all of a sudden, because of the earthquake situation being quite different, things were coming out about how, as new was was interpreted, was was different across you know different people. And and there were all sorts of things about the policies that didn't quite fit a mass situation. This is the same, you know, for years, you know. And travel insurance has applied in a one-off situation. With the, the COVID-19 pandemic, it's applied to a worldwide situation where people have travelled and found themselves caught for no fault of their own, but caught nevertheless. And for policies with a pandemic exclusion, they've found that they cannot look to their travel insurance for refunds or for airfares, cancellation, anything like that, because it's simply out. So what would your key points of advice be to people considering travel um, at this stage then? For anybody considering travel to Australia within the, the travel bubble, they need to be prepared to take the risk. And if they're taking the risk themselves, it means that they could have to pay for time in accommodation that they weren't expecting. It could mean that they are out of work for a while or working remotely. It might mean that in terms of seeing their family, they won't see their family for a while, but it's a known risk. And it might be a risk that they're prepared to take. Or if they think about it, it's not a risk that they're prepared to take.
the Insurance and Financial Services Ombudsman, Karen Stevens. Thanks for listening to the best of First Up. Matewa.